0: And I believe we're starting a new Finding the Rock tonight. I personally would never have begun it on the week of spring break, but I think we didn't stop to think about spring break. But maybe you're here to go through the new Finding the Rock. Are you? Raise your hand if you are. David, you're married to her. Are you going back there? The rest of you, are you? Great, great. We will take you, and there will be more of your tribe next week. I guarantee you, because so many are gone. All right, so let's go ahead and dismiss Valerie C. is going to be teaching it for us and she's going to do a great job and George you're leading them so and yours is already going so we got two finding the rocks headed out so if you're going with Valerie you're going into the harvest room right back here so if you're going to be in there head that way and and god bless you and i'm sorry that we weren't thinking because it's spring break valerie needs more people and you may just want a valerie if there's not enough go ahead and put it off until next week so and the ladies class they've been told they're not meeting tonight yep all right everybody ready to go through philippians anybody love the word of god tonight anybody ever had strife anybody never had strife that's that's the better question anybody never and how many of you have ever had strife in church how many never had strife in church so look we got some yeah they're coming back out we'll do it next week Uh, I I was afraid of that that's all right and Valerie's all prepared but just think you don't have to prepare next week there we go uh So we have some veteran churchgoers in here tonight. Because if you've been in church over two weeks, you're going to experience rubbing personalities with somebody. How does the the church handle strife? We're going to look at that. So let's pray. And we're going to begin Philippians 2 tonight. Father, we just thank you for the word of God. And we pray in the mighty name of Jesus that you will speak to us out of your word. That Lord, you will speak to our hearts and thank you for growing us up in the faith making us strong. Now you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. I receive your word in Jesus name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say life, not strife. All right, let's look at this now. Now last time in chapter one, verses 15 through 30 is what we covered last week. We saw that the cure for jealousy and envy is to pray for the person we're jealous of. Pray for them, not against them. Don't pray that God will heap judgment on them. If you're jealous of somebody, pray for them. That's the way to get around it. You pray for the person you're jealous of, blessing them and rejoicing over their what? Yep. Rejoicing over their success. Because God can make you successful as well. And if you're saved, you've got light years ahead of, of anybody who is not. Now, to spur them on, we are to spur the people on that we're jealous of, experiencing envy towards, speaking positively of them in small groups. And when you're talking to somebody and nobody else is around and this person's name comes up that you're jealous of, you don't run them down, you don't criticize them, you don't drop negative innuendos concerning them, but you speak positively of them because your tongue is going to guide the way that you feel. It really is. We are to bless and not curse. And blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth is not supposed to happen any more than sweet water or bitter is to come out of the same fountain. So how do you get over feeling that, that inside where you're just being eaten up with jealousy? And I, and I said last week, there's no emotion more cruel than than, and vicious and mean than jealousy matter of fact Solomon said jealousy is as cruel as the grave that's pretty cruel so if you're jealous you bless them and you know what it'll do the flaming barb of jealousy will be pulled out and you'll gain the emotional victory because the most important thing is that you don't lose your joy Paul did not let jealousy take his joy away He defeated it emotionally. Now, he refused to be trapped in that snare of jealousy and envy. Now, we also saw that we are to be unyielding, undivided, and unafraid in our battle over evil forces in Jesus' name. Now we come to chapter two. We're going to find in chapter two, we'll be there a couple of weeks, two, three weeks, the greatest Christology, some of the greatest Christology in the entire Bible. Christology is what you think about Jesus, the truth about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is it we worship? Who has changed us? Who do we talk about all the time? When we come together, who are we here to worship? Uh, Who is he really? Well, Paul is going to go into some of the most profound Christology in the entire New Testament. So we're going to see that Paul approaches the problem that was marring the fellowship at Philippi more directly. And that problem was strife between sisters. Y'all look at me and smile, y'all are so grim tonight. Look at me and smile. It was sisters, that could have easily been brothers, but it was sisters. And he tells them, and he names them. Isn't that terrible? Boy, I'd hate to have my name in the Bible in a negative way. But he tells them to put away that spirit of strife once and for all. Now he introduces three examples of the kind of spirit every Christian should display. Now I want you to say something with me tonight. Everybody is ruled by some manner of spirit. You're either operating out of the flesh or you're operating out of a demonic spirit or you're operating out of the Holy Spirit. Alright? Now, he's going to show us three examples of men who operated out of the Holy Spirit, because that's our choice, all right? Now, they are Jesus Christ, first and foremost, and then Timothy, and then Epaphroditus. Now, Paul's first timeless example is the Spirit of Christ. We may not be able to get to that this week. We'll get to it next time, because he covers some things first before he gets to Jesus. First, we see that Paul was distressed as he presents the basis of his appeal for peace in the church. How many of you know, can I just be real tonight? How many of you know that the church is a place of blessing? I mean, you're being blessed right now, right? It's a place of blessing. But how many of you also know it can be a battlefield? All right. Why should it, or why does it sometimes become a battlefield? Because it's a place of blessing. And because it's a place of blessing, the enemy attacks the church. He's always looking for a way to get in the church. Always. Every day, all day, he's always looking for a way to get into the church and cause strife. Dissension, discord, disunity, anger, unforgiveness, bitterness, fleshly things. Now Paul is distressed that this strife has found its way into the Philippian church. So he's going to give us, first of all, a basis for his appeal for peace to rule in that church and in all churches. Verse 1, chapter 2, he says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Now stop right there. He says, first, there is a supreme... Basis for you and I to walk in peace, to work out our stuff and forgive and not allow the enemy of foothold in our fellowship. Do you get this? Satan can't keep us out of heaven, but he can keep us from being influential. And I want to be influential for Jesus. You saw all that blue up there. We're going in, in major parts of the world now. And I don't want that to stop. I want it to increase. I want to see an entirely blue map someday. Now watch this. He says, here's the basis for peace. It's a supreme basis. It's the consolation that we have in Christ. It's the comfort of love. Now that word consolation reminds us of both Jesus and the Holy Spirit because the word consolation means to comfort or to console somebody. He might also have been thinking about Barnabas who was called the son of consolation. That was his name. What a great name. Son of consolation by the apostles there in Jerusalem. That's what they called him. Now the idea is to come up alongside somebody who is troubled or who is hurting and to console or comfort them. Isn't that what the Holy Spirit does for you and me? When you get troubled, doesn't he ease right up and begin to comfort you. And Jesus called him in John 14, 15 and 16, the comforter. He's the comforter. Parakletos is the Greek word. Para means alongside, to come up alongside. And that's what he does. He doesn't say, well, get it together. No, he comes up alongside and he says, let me comfort you. Let me help you. Let me give you words of comfort. And that's what Jesus always did with people. He always comforted, unless you were a Pharisee or a Sadducee, and then he rebuked you and took you to the woodshed. But otherwise, Jesus was a great comforter of people. Now he says, so therefore, we have this consolation in Christ. This is what he's done with us. We should do it for each other. Second, there's the supernatural basis for harmony in the church. And he calls it the fellowship of the Spirit. That is shared participation in the blessing of the Holy Spirit's presence. How many of you in here tonight experienced God's peace this week? He, he comforted you and gave you peace. Anybody? Let me see. All of us. Now, that means we have a shared experience every day of our life as believers in Christ. That shared experience is the fellowship of the the Holy Spirit. There's another verse that used to haunt me in a really good way where Paul says the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That means that we can actually and are to fellowship with the Holy Spirit in our heart. I don't know what your experience is, but mine is, and I don't think mine's different from yours. He speaks to me He nudges me, he warns me, he comforts me, he guides me, he strengthens me, he encourages me. I mean, there are ministries of the Holy Spirit that are precious, and that's why I say all the time, I can't imagine being in this God-forsaken world without the Holy Spirit. I mean, really. Those that don't know God, I I sometimes don't blame them for being on drugs and drinking all the time because look at what you're bombarded with in this world. Yet we in the church have a comforter. We have a strengthener. We have a guide, the Holy Spirit. And it's the fellowship of the Spirit. Shared participation in the blessing of the Holy Spirit's presence. In other words, we in the church all enjoy the peace and the joy of the same Holy Spirit. This should result in harmony rather than strife. Because I want to guarantee you, the Holy Spirit never brings strife. That's the work of the flesh. The Holy Spirit always brings reconciliation, always brings unity, always brings forgiveness. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So you can tell who's ruling in a church based on whether or not they're filled with strife, Or even in spite of all the diversity of personalities and backgrounds and skin colors and everything else, there is love and unity and peace. That's what I want here. Amen? Don't you? Here's the bottom line truth. Some conflicts are too violent to be resolved by natural means in your flesh. The work of the Holy Spirit is needed to bring peace and forgiveness and unity. He's always there to help us the Holy Spirit can bring peace where your flesh can never do it. Amen? In your marriage, in your friendships, in personality conflicts within the church, the Holy Spirit can bring peace. And that's His ministry. We need to know that. Amen? So there is the supreme basis for harmony, the consolation and comfort of Christ. And there is the supernatural basis for harmony, the fellowship of the Spirit. And he names one more. There is the supporting basis. Look what he says, affection and mercy. This means heart and compassion. Paul was appealing to his friends, and here's what he was saying. Uh, he, he wanted their natural sympathy. He wanted their tenderness, and he wanted their, their, their love. He said, uh, they, they of all people would not have wanted to add to his chains he's appealing to them he said look i'm in chains i'm in prison and i'm writing you and i'm hearing about this strife and I, and I can almost hear him saying this if you can't get along for your own sake get along for my sake you ever want to say that to your kids if y'all can't get along for your sake please do it for my sake love me more than you hate each other that's right that's <laughs> right Now, you know what the Lord is saying to us? Love me more than you dislike each other. Love me more than you hang on to your differences. Put it away for my sake, for the sake of my testimony, for the sake of my message to this city through you. Isn't that powerful? Sometimes we need to pull out of our own stuff and look up and say, Lord, I really don't like that person. We don't get along at all, but for your sake, I'm just going to give him a big hug. And you know what the Lord will do? He'll he'll smile on you. He'll smile on you. Following the basis for his appeal for harmony, Paul next uh, interjects the burden of his appeal. He says, fulfill my joy, verse two. Now there's, I think the third time joy is mentioned so far in the epistle of joy, Philippians. Fulfill my joy by being what, everybody? Like-minded, having the same love. Like-minded, can we say it again? Like-minded, Like-minded or of the same mind. This is, this, and I already mentioned this, uh, Paul's cup of joy was quite full. Even when he wrote Philippians, it was quite full, but he said, fulfill my joy. He already knew how to tap into the joy of the Lord. He'd already learned the secret of maintaining joy unspeakable and full of glory that Peter talked about. But he said, fulfill my joy. By behaving right, by doing right with each other. Now I want us to keep in mind something as we continue through Philippians. I want you to notice what Jesus prayed in John 17, 13. As a matter of fact, read this with me. Now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that they, my disciples, might have in themselves. Where did he want the joy to be? In you. And do you think Jesus ever prayed a prayer that wasn't answered? Hello? If he ever prayed a prayer that wasn't answered, forget me praying. Every prayer that Jesus ever prayed was answered. And he said, I'm praying that they have joy. Where? In themselves. All right? Now, joy is found. If you want to know, well, then where's my joy? It's found in knowing Jesus. And it's found in obeying Jesus. That's where the joy comes from. If you're backslidden, if you're kind of flirting with the world, Can I be honest with you? If you're out there, you got one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom of God, let me inform you. You're not going to have joy and you're not going to have peace and you're never going to experience everything God has for you. This is an all or nothing proposition. Jesus was not a halfway savior. He, He didn't require halfway discipleship. We don't get holy on Sunday and live like hell Monday through Friday. Come on, everybody. Pastor, I can't believe that you said that. Well, that's the way some people live. Like hell wants them to. You can't do that. A lot of Christians don't have joy because they don't obey God. Hello? The closer you get to Jesus, the more joy you're going to have. The more you obey him, the more joy is going to spring up inside of you. Joy comes from obedience and it comes from being very close to the Lord. Now, Paul admits... There was still room for a few more drops. He says, fulfill my joy. By stopping your quarreling, settle it at the foot of the cross. Get it together. There's a world to reach. Quit your arguing and fighting. He said, being of one accord, of one mind. Like-minded. Like-minded means to mind or think the same thing. That doesn't mean I got to like everything you like and believe everything you believe in terms of all of life. But like minded means we all agree He's the Savior. We all agree it's the blood that forgives. We all agree there's a heaven and there's a hell. We all agree that the Bible is the Word of God. We agree that there is only one way to God. We, we all agree that there is a narrow way and a broad way. We, we all agree on certain things. Be of the same mind in the things that matter. If you like flying model airplanes, I don't have to like it. That's not what he's saying. Be like-minded. If you like canoeing, I don't have to like canoeing to be like-minded. But when it comes to Jesus and us worshiping him in spirit and in truth, we need to be like-minded. In one accord, they were to be like-minded in what they thought. A meeting of the minds would bring the petty squabbles to an end. We can agree. We can be like-minded that God doesn't want strife in the church. We can be like-minded there. He doesn't want argument. He doesn't want gossip. I despise and I loathe and I detest gossip. It lets the devil into the church. All right? Meeting of the minds. Now, they were to be like-minded not only in what they thought, but in what they wrought. That is, he wanted them to have the same love worked into them that he had had worked into him. What was wrought in the heart of Paul, he wanted to be wrought in them. We could say not just like-minded, but like-hearted. You can't give what you don't have. I guarantee you, you can't. You can't give somebody something of God you haven't experienced. You don't have it to give. But whatever God has done in you, and he can do it through you. If he saved you, you can tell somebody about salvation. If he's filled you with the Spirit, you can tell somebody about the filling of the Spirit. If he's blessed you through the Word, you can tell somebody about the blessing of the Word. Uh, uh, If he's delivered you of a habit, bless God, you can get out there and tell others. He can set you free. But you can always give and should always give what you do have in God. So Paul had this love, and he says, since God did it in me, I want him to do it in you. Now, next he focuses on the cause of their discord, starting with their need for lowliness. Can you, uh, can you say that with me? Lowliness. Lowliness. We like highliness. But how about lowliness? Look at verse 3. He said, let me get down to what's causing your trouble. Let nothing be done through what? Strife or vainglory. That means you're looking in the mirror and you're singing, there is none like you. (laughs) Vainglory, you believe you're higher than others, better than others, more talented than others. Vainglory is when you think a lot of you or I should say too much of you. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. What? What? I'm not about to esteem others better than me. Isn't that what he said? Have you realized that when all else fails, follow directions? Here's the directions. If you want to stop strife in the church, strife pulls the other person down and vainglory puts oneself up. Both produce discord in the local church. A tiny smidgen of unchecked contentiousness and conceit can ruin a gathering of God's people. Grieve the Spirit of God right out of the church. The children of Israel were destroyed. Everybody say with me, destroyed. God's people, his chosen people, the first generation was destroyed by a spirit of criticism and chronic complaining. Nothing was ever right enough, good enough for them both of which produce strife. The criticism and the complaining produce strife among them. Now, Paul warns the church in 1 Corinthians 10, verses five through 11. He says, but with most of them, that is Israel, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They never crossed over the Jordan, never went into the promised land, never inherited their blessing because of strife and contention. Now, Paul tells us these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play and they fornicated and they got into all kinds of sexual sin. Nor let us commit, here it is, sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 people fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and they were destroyed by serpents. And then look at the next verse 10. Read it with me. Nor complain. That's about three of you. Let's try it again. Nor complain as some of them also complained, And what happened to them? And were destroyed by the destroyer. Wait a minute. They were destroyed by complaining? Yes. You get a complaining tongue and a murmuring tongue and a critical tongue, and it's like a shovel that digs your grave for you. I know this is serious. Y'all are looking at me still real serious tonight. Can you inform your face to smile and give me a smile before I feel like I'm preaching bad? All right. We're just talking the word of God here. I had a guy, he visited Sunday, and he told me, he said. He said, I'm visiting, not, and, and I'm not in any way running down. I love all pastors and churches and pray for them. Believe me, I want all of them to explode with success. But he said, I've been somewhere where week in and week out and month in and month out, I'm never convicted. I'm never convicted. And he said, I want to be convicted. And I said, well, stick around. Because we just teach the Word. And if you teach the Word, it will bless you, it will edify you, but it will always convict you. And what happens when you get convicted? It is sharpening your spiritual man. I've never had anybody tell me that that's why they were looking for another church. Because they're never convicted. As a child of God, I want to be convicted. Virtually every day when I read my Bible, I get convicted about something, thought something, said something, did something, had an attitude, something the Holy Ghost goes, fix it, and I get convicted, and I get sharpened, and I'm better for it. Amen. Give the Lord a hand. That's really right. <laughs> now he says, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon the whom the ends of the ages have come. They were destroyed by several things, but one of them was complaining and strife within the congregation. David talked about the safety God can bring us from the strife of tongues. Look what he says in Psalms thirty-one twenty: You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them. That is those who seek God. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. The Bible teaches that the cure for strife in church, in home, workplace, wherever it's found, is lowliness of mind. Now let's look at what lowliness of mind does not mean. Lowliness of mind does not mean the exercise of false humility where we depreciate any acknowledgement of our, our gifts. It doesn't mean you run yourself down. Lowliness of mind doesn't mean you think you're dirt lowliness of mind doesn't mean you've got an inferiority complex and you ought never feel like you did something well or that you have value that's not lowliness of mind remember this satan always wants to define you down if you've got a gift there's nothing wrong with saying in humility well I tell people, I'm a one gift guy. I'm called to preach and teach and reach with the Word of God. But I'll tell you that it's my gift. It's not bragging. I'm not one of these multi gifted people. I have one gift and I use it every way I can. But it's my gift. It's not anything I'm bragging on. I'm not puffed up about it. But I'm not going to tell you, well, I just don't have any gifts. I'm just a piece of dirt saved by grace. That's not right. Are y'all there? Because those people won't even look you in the eye. Well, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm just garbage, man, garbage. <clears throat> That's not lowliness of mind. To pretend not to have abilities that we know we do have is not humility. It's phony pretentiousness. To esteem others better than ourselves does not mean that we consider everybody else to be superior to us. That's not what it means. But it does mean that we want others to have preferential treatment. Stop a moment, because I know you're reacting to that statement. Before you react to it, I want you to do something. Think, is this not the way Jesus Christ was? He was always thinking of others? Did he not first and always place others before himself If that weren't true, he would have never gone to the cross. Why did he go to the cross? It was his passion. I'm gonna preach about it this Sunday. It was his passion. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Jesus said, I don't have to give, my life ain't gonna be taken from me. I am personally, intentionally laying it down. Why? He so loved you, so loved me. So, To be lowly of mind is humility. And humility, says Paul, is the opposite of conceit and selfish ambition. Humility is concern for the advancement of others. Now, here's where I want to go tonight. I'm 58 years old. I've been in the ministry, as you know, 40 years preaching. I'm getting to the age and I'm getting to the place now. I'm thinking all the time, how can I raise up people around me, under me, train them? Get them ready where they can where they can minister to the I'm I'm thinking of multiplying myself through other people. I can only reach so many. But if I raise up 10, 20, 50, 100 who understand how to preach and reach and teach and minister and pray and read the word and interpret it and 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 go with it, then I'm multiplying my outreach. I want to see people succeed. I said recently. I thank God for Gateway. I thank God for Fellowship. I thank God for some of the great churches in our area. I'm glad for them. I wish we had a thousand of them because I want Jesus to prevail in this country. So I don't walk around with my heart all tied up in knots because people are successful. No, I want to see them successful. Every time they score by winning a soul or breaking through in prayer or getting some incredible answer, I rejoice with them. We don't have time for these petty little, I'm jealous, I'm envious. I don't like the way that person wears their hair or the way that guy dresses or I don't like all those tattoos and where in the world did they come from and what planet did they step off of? No, God loves us all. All right? Humility. Humility is concerned for the advancement of others. Now, the person who reigns in the affections of God's people is not the bossy, pushy person. Did you catch that? I'm going to start over. The person who reigns in the affections of God's people is not the bossy, pushy person, but is the quiet godly unassuming one who's always seeking the good of other people please remember that god doesn't bless bossiness pushiness trying to dominate everybody control freaks it got quiet in here just now i felt the holy ghost move On the other hand, unchecked selfish ambition and conceit in the body of Christ is damaging and deadly. James wrote, for where envy and self-seeking exist, there is confusion in every evil work. Every evil thing are there when there is envy and self-seeking or selfish ambition is another translation. This outlook of unselfishness and humility flies in the face of our current twisted culture which places ourselves as number one above all others. We are taught to take care of number one and we're taught that it's all about me, but it's not. Paul said, always be thinking of others. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let each of you, he says in verse four, look out for not only his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now notice Paul is not advising the Christian to totally neglect himself because look at what he says. Not only for yourself, look out, but also, along with that, look out for the needs of others. He's simply stating that we ought also to look out for the interests and the needs and the aspirations of other people. Help others to be all they can be. Invest in the success also of others. Try to push them over the finish line. I really believe the person who makes other people great is great. You can either live your life out trying to make you great, or you can also invest in others and try and make them great. And if there's a few people who have risen to achieve some things because of you, you are like Jesus. It's been said that to seek one's own advancement uh, is worldly to seek your own advancement is worldly. To seek the prosperity, good, and promotion of others is divine. Philippians 2, 4 perfectly expresses the essence of the spirit of the Lord Jesus. Those who heed these words of Paul have, say it with me, the larger view of life. There's a large view and a small view. The large view says, I'm not only going to be all that I can be in God, but I'm going to bring others with me. That's the larger view. The person that seeks only one's own things tends toward narrowness, selfishness, bigotry, smallness, and meanness of soul. It's a sad state of being to arrive at the place where all that you have ever taken care of or worried about is you. Wow. That is so true. Think of Jesus When he first called the disciples, he always spoke to them of what they would become as the result of following him. He was ever mindful of shaping them to become strong, influential men. He said, follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to make you become something you would never have been if you had not followed me. To seek to make others successful, healed, and whole leads to largeness of life. That's why we're asking You folks all the time and prodding you and encouraging you to to get out of the pew and get involved in touching somebody's life. Serving somewhere in the house. Getting out of your own stuff, out of your own troubles, out of your own problems. And reach out and touch somebody else. Because as you do, you are becoming greater yourself. Think of Abraham and Lot. I'm going to close with this illustration. It's very powerful. The day came when there was strife between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's. They needed to part ways. And so Abraham said this to Lot. He said, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are what, everybody? We are brethren. No strife, Lot. Let's not have strife. We're brethren. Now he says, Is not the whole land in front of you the promised land? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. Do you catch the greatness of Abraham's heart here? Because who was the greater of the two? Abraham or Lot? Abraham, he was the leader. Lot, who would have yet been in pagan Ur of the Chaldees. But for Abraham's leadership, Shows the well-watered plains of Jordan. His eyes scanned what was all around him and he should have said to Abraham, you're the leader, you're the blessed guy, you're the one with the covenant, you tell me where to go. But Abraham had a large heart and he said, Lot, you go wherever you want to go and whatever you don't want, I'll take it. Wow. All the land of Canaan had been deeded by God to Abraham, yet this great man stood there saying, we be brethren, let's don't have strife. I'll give you whatever you want. I'm going to bless you. Though the lesser of the two, Lot chose what appeared to be the best land and took it all for himself. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Which of the two men was marked by largeness of heart? Abraham. How many Abrahams do you know who would do this? Most people I know would say, bless God, you little pipsqueak, you're the one following me. You go on over there to that corner and I'm the blessed one, I'm gonna take the best of the land. But that's not what Abraham's heart was. He trusted God. Now here's what happened. As the story unfolds, Lot journeyed east. Everybody say east, this is very important. East, as he went, as soon as he went, God spoke to Abraham. And he said, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are standing, northward, southward, and eastward and westward. God was saying, it doesn't matter what he took. I've still given it to you. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. Arise, walk in the land through its length and width, for I give it to you. The day would come when Abraham would intercede for Lot's very life because the place he chose to dwell in was Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know from the Bible that every single day, Lot's soul was vexed from what he saw and heard. I used to not understand that. I understand that now. I'm gonna tell you virtually every day, living in America as it is now, my soul is vexed what I see and hear. I'm serious. I never would have thought. When I used to read that and go, wow, what was he seeing? I get it now. He was seeing rampant immorality, rampant godlessness, depraved living. And and if if you had the Spirit of God anywhere near you, it vexed you. And I, I look at the news and I see what's on TV and I look around me. And in America, my soul is vexed all the time because of the condition we have plummeted to. I don't know if that's you, but it's me. They were places of great wickedness. What he thought was a winning decision for himself and his family was in fact a horrible decision made out of selfishness. Because of his selfish decision, Lot would lose his reputation, his sons-in-law, his wife, his home, and his daughters to corruption. But Abraham, whose largeness of heart permitted his nephew first choice over all the land, lost nothing at all. All the land which you see, God said, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, I will give to you. Can we stand together? Next week, we're going to look at, let this mind be in you. The kind of mind we just talked about. Abraham had a slice of it, that's for sure. Can I tell you something, church? When God has something for you, you're never insecure about losing it. When God gives you something, you don't walk around insecure about losing it. If you get it, you're always uptight about losing it. Abraham knew, it's mine. I'm not uptight about it. And he didn't lose a thing. Can we pray tonight for largeness of heart? That we would be people who come out of ourselves and reach out and touch others and cause others to rise up with us. As we grow in God, we take people with us. They grow with us. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for a church of servants who practice lowliness of mind, that is, who walk in humility, not in conceit and not in vainglory, and not in strife. Lord, help us to grow out of that low level that it would not have any place in us that we would work it out for your sake, that we would work through differences for your sake. And Lord, we'll grow into maturity and make others great in God right along with us. I want you to stop as your head is bowed and think, who in my orbit can I begin to just pray with and share with and give them what God has given me and help them to come up as people of God men and women of God that I can bless them with what God has blessed me with who is it, is it children, parents a spouse, co-workers and can we just breathe a prayer right now and ask God to help us all to begin to multiply ourselves through others bless others and bring them along with us Why don't you just name that person's name or a couple of people's names. Say, help me, Lord, to be influential in their life. In the mighty name of Jesus.